Well, good afternoon and welcome. I'm Ken Weinstein, President and CEO of Hudson Institute. I'm delighted to welcome everyone to today's panel. Can defense export control reform save the Pacific pivot? Now, for those of you who don't know, Hudson Institute is a public policy research organization dedicated to strong and engaged U.S. international leadership in partnership with our allies. We were founded in 1961 by the late uh, futurist Herman Kahn, and Herman was well known for many things, for being one of the leading nuclear strategists during the Cold War. Uh, but he was also, among other things, the first to predict the rise of Asia. In 1962, in a study he did for the Pentagon, he predicted that Japan would, by the middle of the 1970s, have the world's second largest economy. And Kahn's prediction proved correct, and the Institute has done a significant body of work on Japan and on Asia ever since. Now, one of Kahn's great insights was uh, that key to understanding the future of world events was to understand the interaction between technology, public policy, and grand strategy, particularly uh, in the defense sector. And uh, obviously this, this, this understanding was key to understanding Japan's rise as an economic power, was key to promoting U.S. qualitative edge during the Cold War, and it's key to the kind of defense policy work that we're, we continue to do today. Today's panel is part of a, a broader initiative, a major defense technology cooperation initiative that senior fellow Arthur Herman of Hudson heads. Arthur needs no introduction. He's a Pulitzer Prize finalist, the noted historian of the New York Times best-selling book, Freedom's Forge, which explains how American business won World War II. And Arthur is busy doing work looking at the possibility of a U.S.-Japan defense trade treaty. And this, this discussion today fits within the context of that important work. We're fortunate to have, along with Arthur on this panel, Brant Pascoe, who advised President Obama on export control reform, Christopher Wall, who's a former Assistant Secretary of Commerce for Export Administration, as well as uh, our distinguished moderator, Otto <laughs> Machida, who's the uh, President of the uh, International Stability Operations Association. Otto is well known both in Washington and in Tokyo. In Washington, he's noted as a former domestic policy advisor to the Vice President of the United States, where he worked closely with Hudson Senior Vice President Louis Libby on a number of critical issues for Vice President Cheney. He's also well known to defense intellectuals, defense policymakers, and others uh, uh, in Tokyo uh, for the work he has done both on uh, domestic policy and international policy here uh, in the United States. So we're fortunate to have him to moderate this discussion. And without any further ado, I'd like to turn it over to our friend Otto over here. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ken, for, for those kind words. <clears throat> I, you know, I, 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 I'm not really sure why I'm here. I think Ken would have done a much better job um, as being the moderator. Uh, thank you all to coming to this uh, distinguished discussion. I think it's uh, one of critical uh, importance for those of you who are studying uh, U.S.-Japan relations and also U.S.-Asia uh, uh, relations. Uh, my name is Otto Machida. As uh, Ken mentioned, I am the president of the International Stability Operations Association. Uh, we're a 55-member company uh, organization that represents over 200,000 implementers uh, of stability operations development and humanitarian crisis relief operations around the globe. It's my distinct privilege and my honor to be the moderator and facilitator for this conversation. You know, the, when I first looked at the, the, the title of Can Defense Export Control Reform Save the Pacific Pivot, 
I was a little bit confused about um, what we were trying to talk about. And I, I think that for the defense community at large, uh, we really and primarily focus on the Middle East and, uh, and Africa uh, of recent. And in particular, what is the world's role, what is the U.S. strategy uh, as it fights the onslaught of, uh, of ISIS, ISIL? Um, what are we going to do about the future of Afghanistan uh, and the future of Iraq and Syria? But at the same time, there's this completely other half of the world, the Pacific Asia region, that you really don't see in the news um, quite often. I, I was uh, recently at a discussion uh, with Admiral Harry Harris, uh, the new, newly minted PACOM commander, and he spoke about what keeps him up at night. And I thought it would be the usual things, but uh, interestingly enough, I think there were a lot of additional information uh, that he provided, which I, which I found fascinating. Um, and with that comes the discussion about what is uh, the future of U.S.-Japan relations going to look like. Um, not to diminish, I think, any of our powerful allies in the Pacific region, uh, South Korea and others, uh, obviously, but Japan creates and allows us to use their unique platform uh, to discuss kind of what is the future of U.S.-Japan defense and security alliance uh, relations. Because Japan has not a standing army, as many of you know, for at least from the legal and technical side, they have a self-defense force. Uh, they are not allowed to export any of their uh, defense-controlled uh, technologies, which has now been, uh, as of uh, late last year, uh, allowed. So they're in the throes of trying to determine also, from their perspective, not only what does the U.S.-Japan Security Alliance mean, uh, what, are, what is their role in the international arena, uh, but also, what does it mean for their industry um, that has very innovative technologies that can be used uh, for defense um, equipment and uh, technologies and innovations? So with that, today we have this distinguished panel where we'll talk a little bit both about export control reform and uh, the pivot, or as the Pentagon now likes to call it, the rebalance um, to Asia. A lot of uh, folks uh, in geekdom here in the think tank world here in Washington, D.C., uh, like to talk about each of those issues separately. But I think this is a very unique opportunity for us to delve into those issues in combination. And so with that, I'd like to ask Chris to start off the conversation um, with uh, uh, the overview of export control reform uh, and export control, as, as you saw uh, from within the administration. Uh, I want to remind everyone that this is under, well, I guess, uh, under Chatham, Chatham House rules. rules. Uh, not to be uh, attributed to any one uh, speaker um, per se, um, but we are. <laughs> I guess this is being streamed live, um, so uh, we take note of that as well. Um, I ask, uh, I think everyone is uh, prepared to do a 10 to 15 minute talk about their particular subject. I ask you to hold off your questions um, because at, uh, as soon as uh, Arthur is uh, finished with his talk, uh, we'll start more of a discussion type dialogue and I'll allow uh, obviously, participants and the audience to ask questions. And with that, Chris. Well, thank you, Otto, and, and thank you all uh, to the Hudson Institute for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here to speak. Um, a fascinating idea. Uh, Brant and I talked about this some while ago, and he introduced this notion of a defense trade uh, treaty with Japan. And from my perspective, having practiced in the world of export controls for oh, some 35-plus uh, years, as well as having served in the administration as Assistant Secretary, where we were in charge of administering these export controls, uh, these are two subjects, export controls and Japan's, J Japan trade cooperation, that have not really intersected before. 
now I think, given the realities that we face today, and particularly with the Pacific pivot or the, the rebalancing, uh, it, it is now, I think, uh, fair to say, at least from my perspective, a good idea whose time has come. And there are a lot of reasons for this. Um, it fits both within the context of, of what's going on in Japan today, as Otto mentioned, the, the reassessment of Japan's role in the world, um, the constitutional changes uh, that, are, that are being proposed, uh, the uh, restructuring of its defense acquisition uh, capabilities, uh, as well as, of course, the context of China, of, of dealing with the, the rise of China's military power, its, its uh, 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 engagement in the South China Sea, the, the, the building of the islands there, and the expansion of its, its territorial waters and so forth. Uh, the countries in the region are looking to Japan uh, as a stable uh, and reliable partner as well, which I think from Japan's perspective is a, is a unique evolution and its post-World War II pacifism to a more engaged role in the world. At the same time, looking at it from the U.S. perspective, uh, it achieves a lot of objectives. But one of the important things, I think, uh, to, to focus on is the fact that it does work closely with the whole process of export control reform that's taken place over uh, the last uh, number of years. This is a process I can't take credit for starting when I was uh, in the Bush administration, but certainly we were focused very much on ways to reform the export control system to make it more user-friendly, user to, to bring closer cooperation among our allies, uh, to, to, um, uh, to make it a much more efficient uh, and practical system. These ideas have been carried forward in one of the rare opportunities for, for I think, real bipartisan cooperation the export control reform uh, uh, initiatives that have been undertaken by the Obama administration uh, have carried these much, much further uh, and in a very practical way, which I'll explain in, in some detail in, in Branton uh, even, even, even more so. Um, but the two, the two, two as I say, fit, fit together. Um, a key driver for export control reform was the, was the desire to increase operability with our allies, to, to increase cooperation uh, uh, in, the, in the defense area. There is in the U.S. export control system uh, a, a bifurcation of our, of our licensing between the State Department and the Commerce Department. Uh, and there is also, uh, within the State Department licensing system, dealing with arms export controls, uh, prior to ECR, uh, the initiation of two treaties uh, with the United Kingdom and with Australia, which took some long period of time to conclude uh, and finally were concluded uh, after, after uh, engagement with Congress on this. Um, but, but this also uh, is, is, is in the mode of export control reform and increasing interoperability and, and cooperation amongst our allies. Japan is every bit as reliable an ally as the United Kingdom and Australia. One can't say that about all other countries, obviously, but this is a deep relationship uh, that, um, that bears uh, examination from the standpoint of, of, of a treaty. So a quick background on the export control system and why this makes sense. As I mentioned, there's a bifurcated system. The State Department licenses arms exports. Commerce Department licenses so-called dual-use exports. In the world of State Department licensing of arms exports, it used to be that there was a range of technologies that sort of crossed into the border ranges, but as long as the State Department asserted jurisdiction, they were treated as arms exports. This included components mm -hmm. and, and relatively low-tech items, but nevertheless, if they were specifically designed for military use, it would be considered as, as arms exports. And if, if, you, if you were subject to the arms export licensing regime, that meant that you had to register with the State Department. You had to get a license for each transfer. Uh, you had to, um, there were very few license exceptions. Uh, there are still very few license exceptions available in that regime. Um, and uh, in order to transfer it from one regime to the other, there was a very extensive and controversial process dealing with commodity jurisdictions. We spent a lot of time trying to reform. It's now been reformed substantially as a result of the reclassification of whole categories 
of, of, of technologies from, from the State Department now to the Commerce Department, where the licensing regime is much more flexible. There are license exceptions available. Uh, there are many items that don't require licenses. And yet the same policies can be essentially implemented uh, without, the, without the burdens uh, through the Commerce Department uh, process. Now, the treaties, uh, when they were put into place, uh, they, were very, they are, in fact, very restrictive. They have great promise, but I think it's fair to say that those promises have not been fully fulfilled, and perhaps one of the things we can talk about is how those treaties could be made more effective and adapted to Japan's situation to make them more effective. And part of the reason for this is the congressional oversight that I'll talk about in just a little bit, but the, the restrictions in the treaties require that the, that the, uh, the goods transfer only to a, uh, members of an approved community. These are, light, these are companies that are specifically identified in the, uh, on both sides of, of, the, um, of, the, of the treaty in the UK or Australia and the United States who are eligible to receive products. There are approved consignees. Only approved companies can transmit these items, carry them as freight forwarders from point A to point B. There is a whole range of items that are excluded uh, from, from the uh, munitions list as eligible technologies. Um, and they're largely de devoted only to government government programs, uh, very limited ability to use these for commercial, uh, uh, semi-commercial or, or, or projects that are, that are engaged in by commercial companies that are not specifically contracted to, to, uh, with for the, uh, for the government program. Re-export authority is, is very, very limited unless it's for a government program. And you still need licenses uh, because if there's any technology that's outside the scope of these, uh, these, these treaty uh, categories, that require exchanges of technical data, for example, that need, would, you would need a technical assistance agreement, you still have to get that TAA to support the program. So it doesn't really make, it, it's not a situation where things can just flow freely back and forth, which is the way these treaties were envisioned. They're really, they're really quite restrictive. And anecdotally, I would say, speaking with, with, with companies that I work with, they, they, they really haven't been all that effective. They've been limited only to a very few programs, uh, usable in a very few situations, generally in support of particular uh, activities such as uh, in, in, in support of Afghanistan operations or before with the Iraq operations and so forth where there's a, a, a joint interest in the ministries of defense of both countries and the DOD and the United States are, are, are directly involved. Um, there's also the fact that the compliance burdens are pretty extensive. I mean, many programs, for example, in Europe involve cross-border transfers, you know, involving France, Germany, the UK, Spain, <coughs> et cetera, or Italy. Uh, that's not a very feasible thing to do uh, in, a, in, a, in a license situation, in, in, in a treaty situation, nor in fact is it very efficient uh, in, in, the, in the commerce regime under the license exception that was, that was one of the first uh, elements of the ECR reform called STA, um, Strategic Trade Authorization, where there is the ability to trade within this territory of, of companies, but it requires certifications, record keeping, and so forth. And when you're a multinational company, it's very difficult to keep inventory controls and records and so forth to track commodities that come over one under one license exception versus a license under another exception, an integrated uh, uh, inventory control system for products that are, that are going to all ranges of, of, of types of commodities is extremely cumbersome to, 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 to manage, and it's been very difficult for the European companies, Airbus, for example, uh, uh, and other, other major uh, suppliers in the European sphere to be able to, 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 to use uh, these li this license exception and certainly the treaty. Uh, programs as well. Now, part of the reason for the restrictiveness of the treaty, uh, I would say, has to do, frankly, with Congress, uh, because Congress, uh, of course, has a very important role uh, in the implementation of the Arms Export Control Act. 
uh, unlike the, the, the role in the context of, of dual-use licensing, uh, which incidentally does not actually have a statute in place that authorizes uh, the implementation of the regulations. It's simply occurring under executive authority. Uh, and that's, a, that's an issue, I think, that needs to be addressed in, 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 in time. Uh, but the Arms Export Control Act uh, uh, imposes some very, very strict requirements in terms of the, the, the licensing that I mentioned before, registration um, uh, and, and, and licensing for retransfers in each case, very few exceptions and so forth. Um, the administration's hope was that these treaties would be, as he termed, self-executing, meaning that they would be able to be authorized under a broad umbrella, but then implemented uh, with some degree of flexibility uh, within the State Department um, in terms of the actual implementation. Congress took a different view. Uh, instead of making the treaty self-executing, uh, they required the detail to be included in the agreements and the implementing uh, materials accompanying the agreements, which they required to be submitted to Congress or for, the, for, the, for the Senate, so the Senate could ratify it, uh, as, as a normal treaty would be ratified with 67 votes. Um, and, and this process of, of, of what I would call fly-specking the treaties uh, is part of the reason why the treaties have become so restrictive and, and therefore less usable than they, than they might be. And it's quite interesting, I think, it, you know, it's, a, it's a classic case of where you stand, where you sit is where you stand on, the, on a particular issue. I, I was reading the Senate report on, as it was reporting from the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, uh, the, the, the UK treaty uh, to the floor of the Senate, and one of the comments that Senator at the time Kerry made uh, was, to, was to criticize the administration for failing to consult fully with the Senate uh, at the earliest stages of treaty implementation uh, because, uh, because this would have made the process much sooner, uh, much, much smoother. Uh, and one recalls the, the current events today, the announcement of the Iran deal, uh, where, where similar comments have been coming from the Senate Foreign Relations Committee to guess who uh, on the other side of the, uh, uh, of the, of the, uh, the, the government. Uh, but nevertheless, um, the, uh, because, because the Senate did exercise its control in this regard, uh, the treaties are not, uh, as they say, as effective as they could be. Now, ECR uh, supports all of this uh, uh, interoperability and the treaty objectives in a way that I think is, is, is very important, um, which is to say that the treaties, while they fulfill an important role, are not exclusive. ECR has a very important role also to play in regard to uh, the, the, the same purpose, the same initiative, uh, and why the topic of this symposium today uh, in terms of ECR supporting the Pacific pivot is so very important because uh, along with the treaties and, and, the, and the notion of a Japan uh, defense cooperation treaty, ECR also provides an underpinning for defense transfers, transfers of articles uh, to, to, to Japan. And interestingly, Japan is already a very large user uh, of these articles that have been transferred into the dual use list under what's called the 600 series. Of, of items that are still treated essentially, they are military items but licensed by the Commerce Department and therefore eligible to, to be transferred under certain exceptions or, or licensed, uh, but Commerce Department licensing does not require registration um, and, and is much, much uh, more flexible. Japan, um, I was talking with one of, my, one of my friends on the National Security Council staff the other week, and I haven't actually seen the data myself, but he mentioned to me that Japan has at, by, by a fairly significant margin been the largest user of licenses of 600 series items. Already, uh, so so these formally uh, these articles that were formerly controlled by the State Department now controlled by the Commerce Department are already supporting the goal of interoperability and support for our allies that ECR was intended to promote and the treaties, of course, would would um, uh, would further. And the question is how why why is this why why are they using it much more than uh, companies in Europe, for example? And I think probably the reason is because as it stands now, of course, Japan does not re-export. 
and therefore these items are going to Japan for incorporation into Japanese articles for use within the JDF, uh, within Japan. And because of that, it makes it all these issues that I mentioned before about uh, dual inventory systems and, and cross-border transfers and so forth is simply not an issue. It goes to Japan, it stays in Japan. Um, and, and it's much easier for them to, 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 to manage the necessary controls involved. Now, it's, it'll be interesting because uh, if Japan expands its, its defense support role uh, and um, uh, is able to re-export, uh, for example, submarines to Australia or to South Korea or to, or to help other countries to help support operations in the region, that will raise some of these same issues. But importantly, the only country where re-exports would be, would be restricted because of policy, uh, the 126.1 provisions that uh, impose export restrictions on countries with arms embargoes have transferred over to the Commerce Department. The only country in the region really on that list is Vietnam. Uh, so uh, Australia, for example, uh, uh, South Korea would be eligible recipients of re-exported items, for example, as they're incorporated into Japanese manufactured defense articles uh, up to certain uh, threshold uh, content levels. So these, this is an issue that Japanese companies would need to examine very carefully about the, 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 the incorporation of these items into items that might be exported, but it is feasible. Uh, it is not out of the question now in a way that would have been under the old, uh, older authorization regime. Um, but the treaty, as I mentioned, is only part of the, uh, the, the whole uh, complex of issues. It is, nevertheless, it's an important one. It would have enormous symbolic impact, and I'm sure Arthur will be talking about the values of the treaty generally. Um, it it'll provide, would provide, I think, an anchor uh, for the pivot. It would provide a counterweight to China to some, de to, to some degree. Um, and I think internally within Japan, actually, the, the notion of this, this close cooperation with the United States, this even closer cooperation than already exists, could help uh, Prime Minister Abe you know, move his country forward more towards a, a, a recognition that this is, this is an integral part of, 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 of Japan. Of course, Japanese industry is always ex already extremely capable uh, in, in terms of, of this, there is only a small part of Japanese manufacturing, you know, Mitsubishi Heavy Industries, for example, and a few others that, that manufacture defense articles, but it's already known that they are extremely, extremely capable and already participating in programs like the F-35 and the Osprey and so forth that, that, uh, that, that, that show that they are able, they are up to the, up the job by, by any stretch. Um, so what could be done to improve the treaty process in the context of Japan? I think from a practical standpoint, the first step would be obviously to consult with Congress, to explore with Senator Corker and Senator Biden what they would feasibly consider, and perhaps explore ideas that would allow some more flexibility uh, in, the, in the treaty process, uh, as long as these items are going to be um, uh, covered by treaty. Um, I think there could be an appetite, because I think there is probably general support for uh, a treaty with Japan. Uh, I think it's, as I said before, a good idea whose time has come. Um, but you'll have to rethink ideas about approved communities and approved consignees and re-export restrictions and so forth in order to make these meaningful. Um, with Jap within Japan, if I could venture perhaps just a few suggestions at the very end in terms of how they would implement this on their side. Uh, one of the lessons I think we've learned in the U.S., and I'm sure Brant will talk about this in greater detail, is the fact that we have this bifurcated system with two agencies involved. It's not a very good system, frankly. It's not an example that I would promote to the rest of the world. Uh, as a way to handle it. It promotes bureaucratic inefficiencies. Uh, more than inefficiencies, in, in some cases, it, it's, it's provoked major controversy between agencies as to what should be controlled and what shouldn't be controlled, particularly at the higher technology levels. But Japan is fully, uh, people are fully confident with Japan as an export, a country to whom one can export. It is a full member of all the regimes, Vassanar, MTCR, CWC, Australia Group, and so forth, and is seen as a very responsible uh, export partner for the United States. 
I would suggest to Japan a single licensing agency would be the better approach rather than a, a bifurcated or multiple agency. Uh, for example, in, instead of handling defense exports with the ATLA and, and the others with MIDI, you know, figure out a way to make it, make it unified. A single portal uh, so the companies have a single way, of, a, a more efficient way of addressing these issues. A streamlined licensing process with parliamentary oversight, of course, will be necessary. Uh, but that degree of oversight will have a major impact on the utility of the actual treaty implementation and the use, utility of it by the companies. Uh, and finally, all of this suggests to me for perhaps some need for some uh, review of our statutory regimes in the United States. The Arms Export Control Act is a very restrictive statute uh, and doesn't necessarily have to be as strict as is, as is being interpreted and applied. And of course, there does need to be an Export, Export Administration Act because there hasn't been one for over a decade, and it's about high right. time we, we have one. So with all of those comments, uh, let me turn it over to our next speaker, Arthur, I think for you. Or no, actually, Brent, 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 are you going to talk and, and, and provide even more detail about our, our export control system and the background of the ECR process as it's uh, implement, been implemented by the current administration? Brent. Great. Well, thank you very much. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. I want to especially thank my friend Arthur for the invitation and, and my other panelists. This is, uh, it's a great privilege to be up here with you all. Um, I guess there's a clicker. Oh, yes. See if I can figure out how to use this. I'm not as good as my, my friend Chris here at speaking extemporaneously, so I need <laughs> notes. Um, see if I can make this go. There we go. So just a word of introduction, I guess, um, as I, before we jump into this. Um, I look around the room and I see people who have many decades more experience than me with export controls. Export control reform seems to be a a uh, cottage industry in Washington, D.C., and every administration, I think, going back to Eisenhower, has taken a crack at it, at least. Um, but in the current iteration of it anyway, um, I have a fair bit of experience with it. Uh, just to throw a little trivia out there, they even some of the most seasoned export control hands may not, may not have at their fingertips. I think most people who have followed this particular initiative closely know the story about how the National Academies did a story beyond Fortress America that Secretary Gates took a copy of it the summer of Obama's first term and said, this is really important, we need to do this, and thus was launched export control reform. What might be less known is that um, uh, that report was commissioned by a little office in the Pentagon called International Technology Security, where I was chief of staff for a time. And uh, the first... Uh, co-chair of that was um, John Hennessy of Stanford University, who stayed with the project throughout, and a fellow named Bob Gates, who later decided he'd rather be Secretary of Defense than chair our study. So he handed it off to uh, uh, Brent Scowcroft to, to actually do. And, and anyway, I've been following this project for quite some time. I went to Homeland Security and then ultimately was detailed to the NSC by Deputy Secretary Lute um, to uh, to get this thing off the ground and, and help structure it. So this is a project near and dear to my heart. I, I have to say also that um, I'm here in my personal capacity. I'm currently Associate General Counsel at Incutel. Uh, Incutel has no view on these issues, and uh, I certainly also am not speaking for the administration. This is just me in my personal capacity and some observations um, that some may find interesting on, on export controls. So I'm not going to belabor the four singles. I have to throw them up there. But if anybody has been following export control at all over the last uh, seven years, um, th then there's really no reason to go through the fundamental objectives. Um, perhaps only to say that uh, 
actually achieving these, you know, in this administration to get all four of these done, I think we're likely going to get to the IT backbone, that that'll finally get accomplished with all of the agencies uh, working on the same IT system, which is a major step forward, actually. Um, and a lot of preparatory work has been done on the other three of a single control list and a single agency, um, but is probably going to be left for a future administration. Um, perhaps my single, my principal contribution to this effort was the idea that the ITAR should be an actual list of enumerated list of controlled items. The idea of the, the control list as a positive list was something that I insisted on and, and has largely been carried forward into the regulations. Um, but it may be worth at least mentioning sort of at a higher level, what were we really trying to achieve here? Um, uh, ultimately, what we're talking about here is there are enormous number of licenses in the system where um, the outcome of the license was never in question. Given the nature of the item that was um, being licensed and the destination where it was going, the answer was going to always be yes. Um, talking with, um, uh, well, what should I say, uh, a senior official in one of the embassies where we do have uh, a, a treaty in place, he said, uh, you know, you always say yes to us, it's just that you take six months. Um, and, and, you know, really, that's, that, is, that is harmful to the national security of the United States. There is no reason to tolerate that kind of inefficiency in a national security critical process. And so uh, an overriding goal here was to stop requiring licenses when the answer is always yes. And so in the spirit of that, we've seen, I don't know what the current totals are, but something like half of all of state licenses have moved to the Commerce Department uh, as part of this process. And, uh, um, and, and that is healthy and good, and, it's very, and it is um, important to national security that that, that, that happened. Um, another theme that we had um, is that unilateral controls are not bad, but they are suspect. And um, if we don't have multilateral controls, if, we, if we're unable to convince our friends and allies um, to mirror the kinds of controls that we prefer, then we should look at that very, in a very skeptical light and, and think hard about whether the control we're advocating is the right one. Um, wrong way. Um, the other point I wanted to make about this is the, the way we scoped the project. Um, when we were asked to take on export control reform by the president, we really had a blank piece of paper. We were trying, we were told to make the system better um, and, and to come up with a, an actionable plan that would accomplish that while protecting national security. And so as we thought about that, um, what would be in and what would be out, trying to make the project a manageable size and scope, one of the things we decided is that we were looking at U.S. domestic controls, that um, multilateral controls and treaty-based controls are very good things, but we had quite enough on our plate just trying to figure out how to make the ITAR and the EAR um, work together in a system that functioned. And so the idea was that, sure, there's lots of reform that could be done um, with the multilateral treaties or internationally, but that was simply going to be outside of the scope of the project at least getting started, and that would be something we'd look at at a later phase. 
And perhaps now we're reaching that later phase. I think that would be a, a, a very useful thing for the government to go back and revisit now. Um, I think in doing that, uh, now that the time may be right, it probably is a good idea to think about whether these countries that we have treaty, uh, treaties with in defense trade and, and looking at Japan as a candidate for that re relatively small club, um, whether there is some way to allow greater access um, both for those countries uh, and the U.S. industrial base and also amongst and between them. The Arms Export Control Act, of course, requires that the ITAR can be waived on the basis of a bilateral treaty. Um, it may be worth giving some consideration to whether multilateral arrangements would be appropriate. So we're just gonna, I just wanted to grab a few numbers to throw out there so people can think about the nature of the existing relationship that the United States has with um, Australia, Canada, and the United Kingdom, where we have these um, uh, arrangements for ITAR waivers and Japan. Japan, by any measure, is a major partner of the United States. So these are FMS agreements and deliveries. The most recent data that D, uh, DSCA has put out, I think, is from uh, FY13, at least that's what I could find. Um, Obviously, there's a, uh, agreements and deliveries don't match up because agreements are from prior years and, and, and whatnot. But by any measure, um, uh, the, the dollar value of defense trade with Japan is on par with these other major allies. Um, similarly, looking at the direct commercial sales um, that DDTC has reported, the uh, amount of licensed trade with Japan is enormous. Um, the authorized trade uh, with Japan for FY14 being over $7 billion. Um, this really goes to the point that I was making before, where if a license, if the answer to a license request is always yes, why are we requiring a license? Why are we imposing this delay on on our own national security priorities and the national security priorities of our closest friends. Um, it, it really is a, an idea whose time has come to start looking at alternative arrangements that would allow this to move in a more flexible fashion. This next bit I thought was interesting in part because it illustrates how much work there is left to be done in fostering defense cooperation between Japan and the United States. There are roughly 13,000 companies in the United States that have a facility security clearance issued by the Department of Defense. So that sets aside clearances that are issued by the intelligence community, that are issued by uh, the Department of Energy or the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, right? These are just uh, defense security service industrial security clearances for companies that are doing something classified for the Department of Defense or one of the other government agencies that they support. Um, of those 13,000 companies, this is a rough number, but about 350 of them are in the FOCI program, meaning that they have significant foreign ownership or, or are in fact a wholly owned subsidiary of a 
non-U.S. corporation. I used to be an attorney at, at uh, a law firm here in town that actually had set up probably more than half, actually definitely more than half of those foci arrangements with the Defense Security Service. And in my personal knowledge, I'm aware of two Japanese companies that are in the DSS foci program. I've heard that there may be one or two more, but that's really about it. Um, so when you have a situation that, looking at the numbers, right, where we're doing an enormous amount of defense trade with Japan on par with um, our most important allies, but in these critical uh, metrics of defense integration, we're just not seeing it happen. Now, with the changes that the Japanese government has um, put in place, perhaps with um, care and attention, we will see Japanese and U.S. industry uh, working together in a much more integrated way that will, I think, uh, dramatically uh, serve the interests of both countries. Um, I guess this slide is just the points I just made. I'm getting ahead of myself <laughs> slightly. Uh, so we'll just move right past that. Um, I just had a couple of thoughts, and then I'll turn it over to Arthur, on things that we might think about. As we go forward, as, as Chris mentioned, the treaties uh, are not self-executing. Oh, what have I done here? Goodness. Well, in any event, it matters not. Um, uh, the treaties are not self-executing. They're based on uh, statutory uh, implementation. And so if we do a treaty with Japan, it'll be a fine opportunity for us to go back and talk with Congress and think about the successes and the challenges that we've had in the, the implementation of the UK and Australia treaties. And to the extent that we see that there are areas where that hasn't worked as well as we had hoped, there may be room to adjust them. Um, uh, I already mentioned perhaps the desirability of looking at multilateral uh, arrangements amongst and between the treaty partners. Um, as part of more broadly looking at uh, both these treaties and the regimes, I think certainly the lowest hanging fruit of the multi multilateral regimes that need to be looked at with an eye towards reform is the MTCR. I think that ties um, major programs in knots without providing commensurate security benefits. Um, I think it's worth considering as part of the treaties we've required our, uh, our trade partners and allies to effectively mirror our processes. At the same time, however, in all cases we require that any re-exports come back to the United States for licensing. And it, indeed, it may be worth asking if there is a sub, at least a subset of items still on the munitions list where if they're approved to go to that country for a particular program, maybe we can allow that country, uh, one of the closest allies of the United States, to be responsible for licensing the end item forward. Yep. Um, careful consideration of some of the new changes to Category 14 covering ChemBio are worth looking at since they're called out in the statutory underpinnings. And lastly, in the, in the statute um, uh, for the implementation of the treaties, it calls out um, the specific need for control in the U.S. system on items 
in the UK and Australia control lists, or I'm sorry, items in the US control lists that are not mirrored in the UK and um, Australia control lists. And I thought that was very interesting. It's an exercise that I don't think we, we have gone through. It may be worth taking a good hard look at the delta between those lists in the same way that we, um, uh, we test our um, commerce control lists against the Vassenaar lists mm -hmm. and look very carefully to see if, in fact, some of those items that are not controlled as munitions items by our, our friends in the United Kingdom and Australia, uh, but which we do control, are reasonable candidates for transfer to the commerce list. And with that, um, I've, I've said my piece, so thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> thank you, Brent. Um, thank you, Chris. Thank you, Otto, um, for doing uh, such a marvelous job of both sort of setting up the overall discussion, also giving me, I have to tell you, some additional ideas as I work on this idea of a Defense Trade Cooperation Treaty, a DTCT is the acronym I'm going to be using for it uh, when necessary. And you have to understand that for me, coming at this issue of export control, the issue of uh, defense procurement, these guys are the experts. They did it. I'm really the export control reform voyeur <laughs> um, in this situation, if that's... Uh, not, I don't know if that's entirely the appropriate term, but it's the <laughs> one that arises here because what you, what you watch, and I hope those of you who, aren't, who haven't worked in it before who are getting a sense of how, what a, a large subject, but also, and complicated, but also important subject, uh, uh, defense, uh, export control, and control reform really are, uh, what I've come to understand is the degree to which the history of export control reform is really one of extended frustration. And perhaps, so perhaps the voyeur uh, comparison is not quite so uh, ina inact inapt, inapt after all. Um, and a frustration, first of all, on the part of the par uh, point of view of the participants, of companies and even governments that want to do defense trade with another country, but who find themselves frustrated by the rules and restrictions that are imposed upon them, uh, both by government agencies, in the case of state and commerce, and defense. We yeah, can't sure. leave off defense as well as part of the overseeing process. And also, too, uh, the, the, simply the existence of these rules and regulations uh, laid down by statute, including the including the Arms Export Control Act. But also, too, and it's important to realize this as well, also it is an extended exercise in frustration for the overseers and the regulators and the bureaucrats at the same time, who very often feel that the process it's going forward is going way too fast, that, uh, that there is companies and governments are sometimes reckless about what they allow to be sold abroad or what they allow to be traded abroad in the result of these kinds of... Uh, these kind of export arrangements, and who also simply are worried that if they don't say no, that someday, 10 years, five years from now, they'll be hauled in front of a House or Senate committee and made to explain why they allowed a certain technology to fall into the wrong hands due to their, uh, due to their bureaucratic mistakes. So 
What I'm going to talk about here in the next few minutes, and since they've covered so many of the important points, they've saved me time. And I can, but what I want to do is to talk to you about uh, what a defense trade cooperation treaty does and what it should do and why a defense trade cooperation treaty would make good sense, particularly one with Japan. But I want to point out this aspect of a defense trade cooperation treaty and the very concept of it. And that, that is that a truly effective defense trade cooperation treaty is one that will thread between these two conflicting group, frustrated groups. The participants in defense trade on the one hand, including defense companies, and regulators and bureaucrats on the other. To the participants, a defense trade cooperation treaty says, we're streamlining the process by which defense trade can take place so things will be done faster and you'll get what you need quicker without all that extra bureaucratic overhang. To the bureaucrats and the regulators, a defense trade cooperation treaty says, in this particular case, with this particular country, the bond of trust is so strong and so deep that the kinds of concerns that ordinarily you worry about rightly with regard to the export of defense technologies to other countries simply don't apply. You can rest easy because we are dealing with country A whom we trust as opposed to country Y whom we don't. And that is almost certainly the case when we're talking about the case of Japan. Think about this. Japan, our relationship with Japan, which is now 70 years right, of, a, of, a, of a defense and strategic relationship with Japan, is one that is completely underpinned by treaties. Uh, we have it's a, an intelligence relationship with Japan that is secured by treaties, intelligence sharing, uh, and the whole range of, 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 uh, of interaction and cooperation between intelligence communities within Japan. We have a diplomatic uh, cooperation, also underpinned by treaties, treaties going back to the 1950s. We have military cooperation with Japan, also underpinned by specific treaties and specific treaty obligations. The one missing piece, the one missing piece is defense trade cooperation through treaty. And this is what a DTCT would do in the case of Japan. So what, is it, what does a Defense Trade Cooperation Treaty do? Well, the first thing that it's going to do is, is that it's going to loosen the kinds of cumbersome bureaucratic rules and regulations uh, that have been imposed and have, have, have accreted over years and decades of bureaucratic oversight and congressional oversight over export, defense export trade in general, not with particular countries, but as the overall process takes place. Second, it eases the transfer of sensitive technology into the right hands. Again, that the bureaucrats and the regulators will know that these types of technologies are not going to a country with whom our relationship is perhaps more complicated or problematic with regard to the security of those technologies, but to a trusted ally, one with whom we've had decades of cooperation and work together. That it, a, a DTCT then reduces 
unnecessary bureaucratic rules while protecting security and oversight. That it encourages joint venture in technology development for mutual benefit. And this is one of the important points to keep in mind about a defense trade cooperation treaty as it should work, and that is one, it should be a two-way street, not merely a means by which U.S. companies and U.S. government can export defense technology to Japan, but also one in which Japan can at the same time re-export to the United States or export technologies, components that are going to be important and useful for the developing of U.S. defense systems, and to encourage eventually uh, close joint ventures in those kinds of technologies and in those kinds of articles, where you're bringing engineers together, Japanese and American, to work together on a range of projects and a range of technologies which are going to be important for future defense. And I'm going to bounce back to that a little bit uh, in, uh, shortly later. That it speeds the delivery of critical systems when and if they, when, when they are needed. So that when a country, let's say, that finds itself in a rapidly evolving hostile security environment, as one would argue Japan is today, would suddenly need certain kinds of technologies in order to, in order to uh, uh, monitor, monitor acts by a potential or a real aggressor, that the technologies that it needs in order to do that are delivered in a timely way, not held up for months or even years in an elaborate bureaucratic process. And finally, the one other important goal for, for a, a defense technology treaty, and this was certainly the case with the UK and the Australian treaties, was the idea of encouraging interoperability yeah. to make it more possible to integrate US defense systems and technologies with those of our allies for quicker and more facility in terms of dealing with common threats and in terms of building a strong, capable network that's able to be enhanced and updated over time, not simply cobbled together and held together by a number of different sorts of, of, of common links and technologies, particularly in the IT area. So how does a DTCP work? Well, first of all, it permits com companies to export defense articles and technologies with exemptions from the U.S. Arms Export Control Act and ITAR, which both of my previous, most of my colleagues have discussed before. Uh, it gives, it's an exemption treaty, and that's one of the reasons why the treaties are so short. It doesn't tell you uh, what you can export, it just tells you who can't tell you not to export, and gives you the exemptions that allow you then to do that kind of business with a minimum of oversight, a minimum of bureaucratic interference. Second, it allows companies already in defense trade contracts to apply to DCTT exemptions. This is also, thank you, very important in the process uh, to be able to do that so that companies that are already engaged in work with an American company such as, let's say, Raytheon or Lockheed Martin on a project would then be able to apply for exemption from the current rules under the new treaty and under the new under the new kinds of uh, easements, easement of, of rules and restrictions that it requires. Thirdly, and this is a point that touches on something that Brandt had raised just a minute ago, it also allows companies to re-export to other DTCT countries, for example, Australia, without ITAR oversight. 
Brandt raised the issue about how do you turn the bilateral arrangements of, the, of, of DTCTs into something that's more multilateral, that widens the scope, that opens the channels for more trade among uh, all of the DTCT, all your trusted allies. This is the provision that does just that. It's the provision that allows, for example, Japan, when re-exporting technologies it's developed with the United States to United Kingdom, to Australia, to any future signatory of a DTCT without having to go back to square one and go through the whole ITAR, uh, whole ITAR regulation process and the oversight by the bureaucrats. And then fourthly, re-export to non-DTCT countries is not exempt. This focuses on one of the most crucial issues, both for the United States and also for Japan, uh, which I'll simply sum up as the issue of not allowing sensitive technologies to fall into the wrong hands through the transfer tech, transfers of technologies, re-exports, and so on. I know from discussions with Japanese officials and with Japanese business executives that this is a very sensitive issue for them. They do not want anything that they would develop as part of their new export regime and their, any future relationship with the United States and defense trade to, to be in any way fall into the hands of people who the world community, uh, for example, the United Nations, would see as countries that ought to be sanctioned or and otherwise are going to abuse those kinds of technologies. We in the United States worry a lot about that too when it comes to the issue of re-export. With the United States and Japan, you've got two countries for whom this is an overriding concern, and it's one which is then enshrined in the provisions of the treaty itself. No re-export to non-DCT countries without going back to square one and letting the bureaucrats have a look and, and make decision whether to approve or disapprove. Who benefits from a DTCT? Well, first of all, I argue, Japan does. It will be positioned under the ter terms of such a treaty to purchase vital advanced U.S. military technology and critical systems. Um, this is going to be a major part of how Japan is going to fulfill its new mandate to play a more proactive role uh, as a, as a uh, more act proactive defense role in the world and in the region without U.S. help, without U.S. support and technology. It's going to be very, very difficult to do that. And that support should be uh, as forthcoming and, and expeditious as possible. A DTCT does that. For the U.S., it's also a crucial step. It helps us to preserve our, industrial, our defense industrial base, about which there's been considerable worry over the last decade, decade and a half, um, and the ways in which then U.S. defense articles on uh, defense technology would export helps build a customer base that sustains that industrial capacity and allows us to maintain open factories and shipyards and a range of other kinds of facilities that might otherwise be shuttered because the U.S. defense, defense budget winds down and, and wears down. Plus, it also, too, again, opens, and I raised this point earlier, opens the possibility for joint innovative projects for our shared defense needs, for example, in cyber defense, of allowing companies, not just government to government, which of course is important and crucial, we mustn't forget that as part of, this, part of the overall component, 
This is a cooperation between the United States and Japan, not just between defense companies. But, but, the, but the, the possibility of companies joining together, working on key issues, key types of technologies here, could have an enormous benefit, enormous benefit that flows not just to the United States and Japan, but also to other countries as well, under the right kinds of re-export regime, under the right kinds of conditions by which those technologies would flow out to other U.S. allies uh, and also to Japan's allies uh, in, the, in the Pacific region. And then finally, I think, well, uh, the other thing to raise about this, about the other great benefit here, and the one that lies, let's say, just beyond the horizon, is the possibility for a U.S.-Japan high-tech alliance to have Japanese help in developing what the Pentagon would call the sixth generation of military technologies, whether you're talking about hypersonics, whether you're talking about uh, unmanned systems, electronic rail guns, for example, uh, a whole range of technologies which are going to redefine and even transform defense and military technology in the future. Here would be an opportunity for the United States and Japan to build what I think would be a, a ultimately an unsurmountable lead, an unassailable lead in those kinds of technologies, one that could launch the next revolution in military affairs that could arise from that U.S.-Japan alliance and that element of it. So U.S.-Japan DTC, reinforcing collective security, Complementing and enhancing our mutual defense treaties that already exist. Reassuring other Asian allies, including South Korea, the Philippines, Australia, who sometimes worry about a resurgent Japan, given past history, uh, given Japan's sometimes disruptive role in the region, in the process. Close U.S.-Japan uh, alliance is one that should be, in sense, to help to dampen those fears, including in the part of China and concerns about uh, a growing China-Japan uh, uh, rivalry that could eventually perhaps spin out of control and lead to provocative problems. And then, too, it also opens future horizons for future security and defense trade cooperation with countries such as India, uh, with countries such as, I mentioned, I mentioned South Korea, perhaps even further on down the road, Vietnam. I'll just say, say quickly, this is a process that is not brand new. It's already started. We've already begun that kind of close U.S.-Japan cooperation in, for example, missile defense, uh, in terms of mutual security cooperation through GSOMIA. The defense trade cooperation simply extends and enhances and augments processes that are already at work, already in place. So what's the conclusion? How do we, in fact, what are we going to finally say about all this is that a U.S.-Japan Defense Cooperation Treaty, in my opinion, supports American strategic interests in a strong, secure Japan and a stable and peaceful Pacific region. That the kind of special relationship the United States has had with Great Britain, and that it was the anchor of NATO and the anchor of peace and security in Western Europe, now has the possibility of being repeated in the Pacific region through a special relationship with Japan, and that that special relationship with Japan will be a cornerstone of our security in the next century.
That's what, a Japan, that's what a defense trade cooperation treaty should do. It's one that, and we've hinted at these already, it's one that, if done properly and organized and put together properly, would allow for the possibility of revision of already existing treaties to make them equally as effective and efficient. Um, there's a huge opportunity that's opened up, an enormous opportunity for the United States, for Japan, for Asia, as well as for our other allies, and the Defense Trade Cooperation Treaty is one important way in which to exploit that opportunity and to gain the most possible benefits for the most possible participants. I'm done. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Wow. Um, I'm going to claim a moderator privilege by asking the first um, one or two questions to, to get the conversation rolling. Uh, and as we start the conversation, uh, for those of you who want to raise uh, your hand and ask a question. Uh, I believe we have mics uh, that we'll be giving you, so if you'll kindly wait until we get the mics to you. Uh, and then if you can stand up, uh, announce who you are, who you're affiliated with, and then ask the question as succinctly as possible. I do ask that it be a question, not a statement, uh, as we have seen in, in several of these types of conversations. Uh, the first question that I have is, uh, how long does a, would a U.S.-Japan uh, defense trade cooperation uh, treaty take to put into place. Mm. So looking at the timeline, is it a year, is it a two-year project? And the second is uh, many of you have talked about uh, the lessons learned from our existing uh, DTCA, DTCTs uh, with Australia and the United Kingdom. Uh, what would you say those lessons learned are and how would you incorporate them in a U.S.-Japan Defense Trade Cooperation Treaty? Shall I start? Um, how long? Uh, it will take some time. Um, they're very complicated agreements. Uh, they involve uh, detailed dives into technologies uh, that the bureaucrats will need to uh, undertake on both sides. Uh, I don't know, I don't recall exactly how long it took for the UK or Australia treaties to, to move from conception to implementation, but it was... About two years. About two years? Yeah, one of our colleagues, Bill Ludy, was in fact instrumental, who's, who's not here, uh, was instrumental in negotiating the, the U.S.-U.K. treaty. And that, that actually is faster than I would have thought. <laughs> it is, isn't it? Uh, I, would have thought I think they were surprised, but I yeah. think... Uh, and then it probably it, took another couple of years after that for the Senate to, to do its oh, yeah. work and all. Right. Um, so it's, it's, not a, it's not a fast process, but it's not one that's... Uh, I mean, one can see the, the end point uh, from the point that you start. So it's, not, it's not, not, not infinitely receding in the horizon. So it's one that's well worth, worth beginning because... You know, it's one that would not be completed within this administration for sure, uh, but it's one that I think a f next administration would be uh, willing, very willing to take up. Uh, so well worth starting uh, as soon as possible. And certainly, you know, in fulfillment of this administration's objective of strengthening the, uh, its position in the Pacific region, um, you know, with the, with the TPP that's just been passed, as close as it was, uh, and the recognition, mutual recognition of the China situation, um, it, it really is important to add muscle to that, to that pivot, uh, and this, this would be a way uh, to do that. Um, in terms of lessons learned, um, you know, the, the points that I mentioned before, and, I, and I, uh, I fear I may have been perhaps too critical of the agreements in focusing more on the deficiencies than on the opportunities and, and, and positive aspects of them in my, in my remarks, because um, although uh, when you ask companies, do they say it's worked well, and they say probably not very well, on the other hand, there is not a company who would want to abandon them. 
And in fact, when they were in the process of, of being ratified, uh, you can be sure that the companies from Australia and the UK were very, very strongly supportive of these treaties. They see this as a foundation of uh, the, the technology relationship and the defense relationship between the United States and those, and those two countries. So they, the, the companies, despite their gripes and criticisms, do see these as absolutely fundamental mm -hmm. to, to, to the mutual defense That's industrial base. Um, I would say, you know, lessons learned. I mentioned, of course, the, the, the Senate uh, engagement process from the very beginning uh, is, is a very important lesson learned in terms of process. I think in terms of substance, um, uh, I think there, there are points that need to be examined in terms of the technologies that are covered, uh, the exclusions involved. Uh, I think there are points that need to be learned as far as the, um, uh, the, the, the ability to re-export uh, uh, both within and well, in-country transfers as well as outside the communities. Uh, and, uh, of course, I think, Branch, your, Branch, your, your notion of a multilateral uh, approach where you have multilateral re-exports within a, a larger community of companies, of countries with defense trade cooperation treaties is a very important uh, point because, because you, you can envision these treaties expanding to include other countries as well and having that larger community of like-minded countries with similar interests in building the technology base and similar security concerns um, would be a very, very important benefit. It would make it would be a, 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 a sort of an added plus to the to the to the bilateral part of the um, uh, of, of the treaties. Mm -hmm. Let me just build on that a little bit, if I can. Um, a couple of, of brief observations. Uh, one is that uh, although it's very easy for us to to today um, Monday morning quarterback the deficiencies of of the treaties or the the implementation of them. In fact, it's good that. Uh, the initial rollout of these treaties was restricted, right? This is serious stuff. Um, it's, it's life and death in a, in a very meaningful way. And uh, any kind of, of relaxation of the rules should be cautious and measured and done in steps and tested and see what's the effect of this. I think the lesson that we've learned from the implementation of the treaties to date is that what has been relaxed has actually worked well, and there's room for um, further maximization of national security by letting the, the, the controls down another measured step. Um, and I think it's time, uh, the time to do that is here, and the, um, the fact that we are thinking about uh, adding Japan as one of these countries that has this preferential arrangement makes a good time to go back and revisit those and, and look for um, the, the specific areas within the treaties where there's the most pressure, uh, where it would really uh, most significantly benefit the, the relationship between the United States and these important allies. Um, the other point that I would, I would throw in uh, in terms of timing um, I hope this is something that um, the, the next administration picks up uh, fairly early on. Um, one of the things that I've learned from the export control reform effort that I was part of is that uh, an administration only has so much gas to get something done. And um, so the defense trade treaties were the product of the Bush administration. Um, when it came to the Obama administration, they didn't have the same urgency as the new administration had its own priorities. And so just in the interest of moving the process forward from its, from its uh, initial spark to actual implementation with the full energy of a single administration, I think would be important to its success. So it's the kind of thing that I really do hope 
will be high on the list of interest uh, priorities, whether it's a, a Democratic or a Republican administration. Sure. I'm going to say something. Chris mentioned uh, consultation with Congress. I have to tell you that the conversations that we've had on the Hill about the DTCT, mm -hmm. particularly on the House side, support overwhelmingly positive. Yeah. Good. And in fact, most is, is like, what's the downside? Mm -hmm. They keep waiting for the other shoe to drop about right. such a treaty. Right. Uh, I think, in many ways, the the rise of China as a uh, disruptive uh, influence in the region has a lot to do with that. Mm -hmm. So sort mm -hmm. of taking away the worries and it's like, why don't why didn't we do this before? Mm -hmm. So I think when you have it, if you have an administration that's enthusiastic for it, you're going to find a lot of help and support in Congress. And I dare say, part of that would also be then an opportunity to revisit the earlier treaties and make some revisions and changes. The two things that I've noticed, the two things I would point out, just sticking points, is one is I might create a new separate implementing authority mm. for the treaties, uh, one in which the existing uh, authorities, state, commerce, and defense would have a voice but not necessarily control the overall implementation mm -hmm. process. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's a possibility that you mm -hmm. might want to do to speed it up and to get some fresh thinking about where this treaty is going and why it exists in the first place. Mm -hmm. The you second single licensing agency. <laughs> there you go. There you go. We're taking a move in that direction then in that sense, wouldn't we? The other thing that strikes me too is that the whole process, and those who talk about this, is that the process of eligibility certification is way too long. Way too long. Way too long. Yeah. Uh, and that's one reason why a lot of companies have just not gone the route of DTCT but stuck to the old known grooved channels. What I like to compare it to is that it, 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 the process begins to become longer and longer, longer than normal channels. I like to compare it to if, you're, if your high school senior applies for early admission right, to a college or university uh, and you finally get the notice that yes, she, she or he is accepted for early admission in late August. That's a little, little behind, little behind the times. This is kind of what has had, what, what companies were finding with the eligibility process. It mm -hmm, came too mm -hmm, late, mm -hmm. too far along the process. They'd like to stick with what they know. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's a very interesting point about the, uh, the, the separate authority for implementing the treaties apart from the existing agencies. I don't think there is any prohibition on that. The Arms Export Control Act simply provides for the president to, de to delegate. Uh, his authority to, to regulate licensing for that's for, my impression technologies and it doesn't say he has to delegate to any particular agency so that th something like this could be created well the treaties um, did the original treaties did uh, and ceded no, it to, to state which no, made sense but the treaties did yeah because, and be, but, but what I'm saying is that the that the underlying statutory authorization for licensing exports doesn't necessarily require right. state to be that party I mean the president could could change the the licensing authority I mean it's, I, this is this is not going to happen of course but but it could change from commerce from, from state to uh, to another agency by delegation under that existing statutory authority. That's interesting. Um, yeah. Excellent. Well, then let's open up the questions to our uh, participants. Does uh, anyone have a question to ask first? Go ahead. Uh, let's get a. Let's get a. We'll start. We'll, we'll start with her, and then we'll go back to you, sir. Thanks. Uh, Meredith Gilston with the Export Practitioner. Um, you, both of you, or all of you, have sort of mentioned in different ways the existing sort of defense sales to Japan, and then, um, but there also is there, they use STA in the 600, they use the 600 series quite a bit, but they haven't used STA as much as they could. Mm -hmm. Do you see, with how would that change with a 
treaty and you see that ha changing in the future, um, how that would make it easier because there is already license exception available that right. companies haven't been using according to Congress they officials. Have. So I, I would how would that change? Yeah, I would see, um, I don't see them as substitutes. I see them as complements. Um, the fact that, that they, they, they currently use uh, 600 series licenses uh, is, is indicative of a fact that there is already a very strong flow of defense trade cooperation that's taking place. I think by expanding the, the range of things that could be uh, worked on together by means of a defense trade cooperation treaty would open up that many more opportunities for even more expanded 600 series trade uh, and possibly STA as well. Um, uh, so, so I see them as, as, as actually reinforcing and complementing each other. And I would also say that when you talk to officials who oversee the process now, for example, at DITSA and so on, they feel that they're doing a pretty damn good job when it comes to uh, uh, licensing and uh, permitting that kind of technology and trade with Japan, because precisely because Japan is a close ally. Mm -hmm. But quite apart from everything else, this is a relationship which is now going to be launched and what has been up until now in a sort of steady stream is going to become a flood. And if you have, if you have a bureaucratic process, however <laughs> efficient and fair-minded it may be, that's going to be overwhelmed by the volume, then you've got a real problem. And I think one of the things about a DTCT, and this comes back to Chris's point, it doesn't replace the existing systems, mm -hmm. but it will allow for... A, I, won't more, I won't say a spillover, but allows for an additional channel that will allow for a whole bunch of technologies. Maybe not the most sensitive, the ones in which mm -hmm. the federal government mm -hmm. would sort of say, no, we'd rather do, or Japan says, we'd rather do this through the existing channels, let's say foreign military sales. But for company to company types of arrangements, this would be ways to speed that process up without having to, getting, getting stuck up there for, for months or even years. Plus, Arthur, I would also, uh, re refer back to your point, which I think is an excellent one, which is that um, it will stimulate a DTC, DTCT, will stimulate a range of other types of cooperation arrangements, including joint ventures, including technology exchanges. Um, you know, there's a, there's, a, there's a kind of a multiplier effect. Uh, that which doesn't necessarily fall under, yeah. like, DITSA rules. Or exactly, whatever. exactly. Yeah, and, and the more multiplication takes place, again, the more activity takes place. So it's not right. just, it's not, it, I wouldn't think of it in terms of, 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 of goods and technology flowing through one channel it's or this channel or the other channel, but it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a larger flow across all channels yep. that would be stimulated. Sir, you had a question in the back? Yeah, I'm Lee Bolio, Voice of America. Uh, in May, uh, in a discussion uh, held at Carnegie uh, on the same subject, and James Shaw has expressed a concern that the uh, the joint uh, U.S.-Japan, uh, you know, weapon technology cooperation might uh, cause China to have a, a, a negative concern there. Mm. The, the probably push, for, for example, Russia and China get together, develop something, a specific high-tech program that the United States and Japan might be engaging in uh, developing. So I wonder if you guys are concerned about that or, or not. Thanks. Uh, Jim Schaff raises a very interesting point. It's one that he and I have discussed, as a matter of fact. Um, and I'm going, to, I'll, I'll, I'm going to focus on one particular aspect of this. And this comes back to their questions about the joint venturing and what's happening here. Is that if you allow worries about what someone else will do to prevent major technological advances from going forward, particularly in the defense sphere, then you've got a serious problem 
uh, and it's one that goes far beyond just a question of defense trade here. I think what you are looking at, and, and perhaps China would have to sort of re rethink and revise some of its thinking about defense technologies and the way in which it's developed its strategies here, where you would have the U.S. and Japan working cooperatively on sixth-generation technologies here in ways that a country such as China simply will not be able to mm -hmm. keep up with, frankly and bluntly. That this poses, the real issue is not going to be what will the United States and Japan do, uh, and maybe they should think twice about approach, a kind of approach, but that perhaps China needs to think twice about the stance that it's taken in the region and the way in which it thinks that its technologies and future technologies will be able to deal with a move that could really leapfrog ahead of anything that they would be able to develop with Japan and the United States, the two biggest and most sophisticated high-tech economies in the world mm -hmm. working side by side. That's a pretty exhilarating prospect, I think. Mm -hmm. But it's one that maybe should make, be sobering also to those who, who, who have other kinds of designs and, and agenda. Maybe I can just add on to that a Please. little bit. So um, when we were starting the whole export control reform effort in 2009 as part of the uh, new Obama administration, I had uh, a number of Chinese reporters come up to me and ask me questions about what the significance of this was for cross-strait relations. And I hmm. scratched my head a little bit and, and I said, this doesn't have anything to do with cross-strait relations. I mean, nothing. This, this is not, no one is even thinking about cross-strait relations in, in this. Um, and, and, even, and today, looking back, I think that was correct. I, I'm still not aware that it had anything to do with cross-strait relations. This was something that was done to maximize U.S. national security with its closest allies. Um, and, uh, and, and, and as such, the entirety of the thing was really designed to be, I think, um, neutral from the Chinese perspective. It, it, China um, is not a defense trading partner with the United States today, nor were they uh, at the beginning of the process uh, in 2009. And, and I don't see that that has um, prejudiced China, and, nor has it benefited them. It w simply wasn't part of the equation. It was a project that was looking at the military trading relationships between the United States and its closest allies. Uh, this is the same thing, right? This is um, looking at a close relationship between the United States and Japan and what can be done to strengthen the mutual security between the United States and Japan. If it ancillarily has an impact on others in the region, well, then it'll have that impact. But the, the, the driving motivator here, I, I, as I see it, is the relationship, the close and abiding and, and deep relationship between the United States and Japan and removing completely unnecessary and destructive impediments to the natural growth of that relationship. Excellent. Thank you. Any, any other questions? Gentleman in the back. Hello. Uh, I'm Hideaki Tonoka. Uh, I'm a, I work in a Japanese IT company, Fujitsu. And uh, before that, I worked in the Ministry of Defense of Japan for 20 years. So at that time, uh, I had experience with uh, you know, a signature and a ratification of the treaty in Japanese government. And uh, it was so cumbersome and uh, hard, and uh, not only within uh, government, but also uh, 
pathwayed uh, the Japanese diet. And uh, so for my experience, ratification of the, uh, the treaty, uh, usually it takes two years in Japanese system, considering the uh, budget and uh, diet session. So, and I think it is very important uh, to keep the momentum within the Japanese government, mm. within Japanese government. I mean, uh, Japanese, uh, the, you know, bureaucrat always change one or two years cycle. So when it started, but the, uh, two years later, that person moved to other, other position and a new person comes. And that person uh, not always have a good knowledge on that. So I think it is very important to keep the momentum. And uh, I, I think it is a good idea to, to, you know, to realize that treaty. But on the other, uh, it, it is very good for the you know, IT company of Japan. And uh, so right now, you know, our company have a negotiation with a US defense company on uh, many things. But the, uh, every conversation we experience, oh, this section is an IT restriction. So please wait, and we wait for three months. <laughs> the next conversation <coughs> comes. So it so takes time. So if we can exempt such kind of ITER, you know, regulation, it is very good and uh, speed up our, you know, conversation. But the only other, so it is a good, not only for United States side, but the Japanese side too, of course. But the, uh, on the other hand, uh, uh, it, it is not, uh, you know, a U.S. Ex export control, but the Japanese side, uh, we like to have our RDP MOU. RDP MOU is a reciprocal defense procurement memorandum of understanding. Uh, United States already have uh, 23 countries uh, you have a MOU. And of course, UK and Australia has it. So I think and this is an exemption for the uh, special metal restriction or by American restriction. So it's, it's like a to protect US industries from uh, foreign companies. But uh, from Japanese side, once we want to export a defense system or IT system to the United States, this kind of buy American restriction or other restriction mm -hmm. is a kind of a non-tariff -tariff restriction for Japanese company. So I think it is a good, it may be good idea to, you know, to the uh, both to the at the same time, well, you know, the treaty and this MOU, and that makes yes. you know uh, the relationship United States and Japan uh, keep the you know the balanced relationship. I think, and I'd like to have your opinions. Thank you. Uh, yeah, let me let me rephrase that question. I mean, is a, is an RDP MOU an interim step to having a U.S. Japan DTCT? And 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 I guess the. The second is with respect to buyer America restrictions, et cetera, uh, it, does that become part of the negotiations or the discussions under a DTCT framework? I, I see them as very separate issues, actually. Um, uh, on the first, first point, I think, yes, it's, it, it, that is one example of the range of cooperation that currently exists with Japan. I mean, there are a number of agreements that, that are in place for specific programs uh, and, and, and larger ones, too, on uh, exchanges of information and so forth, and strictly in the defense sector. And we are talking about only the defense sector when it comes to this, this, this topic here uh, on, on, um, on ECR and, and, and the Defense Trade Cooperation Treaty. Um, 
but it's one example of that, and it's certainly it's one of the one of the points on the road uh, that would lead to a larger cooperation, uh, such as the, the the Defense Trade Cooperation Treaty. It's a foundation uh, stone, as it were. But on the latter point, I mean, I I, I have to recall, but I, I the, the 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 way defense trade sorts out under the, uh, the government procurement obligations, I think they I think they are not part of that, is my recollection. Uh, so I see that as a whole separate issue by America and, and that range of things. And if there is an issue there. That's a topic for 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 TPA uh, uh, or, mm -hmm. uh, or TPP, excuse me. Um, that that that's the context in which that ought to be addressed uh, as a trade issue as opposed to a defense issue. Right, right. Yeah, I, I agree. Man, um, since our time is running out, I'm going to ask a final question. It's a it's a it's a double header, I suppose. Um, if you were to advise both the U.S. government as well as the Japanese government, and add into that. Uh, any other stakeholders you believe you need to hit on um, to make the case uh, for a DTCT with the, with the Japanese, what would that be? What would that advice be in, say, one or two sentences? I mean, in terms of, in terms of implementing a treaty? or In, in terms, terms of, of terms starting the process, in terms oh, of the getting oh, yeah, the right, DTCT right. Uh, in, the process, in place? Yeah. And, yeah. Well, I, in two sentences, I would say initially, uh, I, I, you know, there's already... There, as far as the U.S. is concerned, I think it's not quite pushing on an open door, but the door is already ajar, and it can be it can be done. I don't know the situation in Japan, uh, but I think at least the prime minister has has launched an initi initiatives that would carry Japan in this direction. Uh, my main advice, I think, would be to industry. Industry was extremely important in the context of the U.K. and Australia treaties. That's right. Uh, and I would make the same case to Japanese and U.S. companies both uh, to raise this issue, to give it some visibility. Uh, and to, to promote the idea because, uh, because it has not become an idea that is widely circulated in the marketplace of ideas, uh, but is one that could easily become such and, mm -hmm. and, and should become such, and it's really the job of industry to make it, to, to, to put it out there. I would just add to that um, that uh, the importance of thinking about this in a strategic fashion. Right? The, the decision that the Japanese government made to uh, to permit entry into um, um, the, this, uh, the military trade was a strategic one made for strategic reasons uh, and not entered into lightly. Um, um, there are, I think, uh, still too many people in the U.S. government who are seeing this as business as usual and not as the strategic opportunity, which in fact it is. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so we need to look at this um, as an opportunity to strengthen, to recast, to dramatically deepen the relationship, uh, the bilateral relationship between Japan and the United States. Um, you think about how, you know, we have been in the defense trade with um, the United Kingdom and, uh, for a very long time. Um, there have sophisticated companies that do this stuff and have been doing it for decades, sophisticated legal staffs who have been doing this stuff for decades. I'm certainly not suggesting that my Japanese colleagues are not sophisticated, but they don't have the depth of experience in this trade that our European colleagues have. And our European colleagues cannot make sense of our system, <laughs> right? And so if, if, if the government wishes to build this relationship, it has to be forward-leaning in making the system more user-friendly so that it can actually be understood. It's not just art and witchcraft, um, how to, to massage the ITAR 
into a, a particular outcome, right? Um, and and I, I'm not yet seeing the, the measure of, of strategic thinking among some of the, the people in the executive branch that I've spoken with. Um, certainly with some it's there. Um, uh, the enthusiasm that we've seen from Arthur's conversations on the Hill uh, are very promising, but we need to have some of that enthusiasm translated into the executive branch. Fair enough. I'll tell you what I would do. The first thing I would do to anyone I was speaking to, particularly over here, was show them my last slide. Can you switch mm -hmm. those back on mm -hmm. for me? Which I did not show you, but I'll unveil to you now. <laughs> yeah. And that's this chart of Japan's defense spending. What you're looking at here is not just a, from the point of view, let's say a business point of view, opportunity for American company, defense companies uh, or others who would be uh, exporting what, and selling what Japan would be buying. What you're also hearing is an alarm bell, if you like, even a plea for help. Mm -hmm. This is one in which the United States can step up and help, and help not only Japan acquire the kinds of technologies it needs to be secure and safe in its region under the current environment, but also one that helps us, through mutual benefit, by the sharing of technologies, by the sharing of projects here, that this kind of increase in spending uh, and this kind of commitment of resources on the part of the government of Japan represents not just now, but also into the future. Uh, this, is, this is, as Brandt said, this is an opportunity to deepen the relationship, deepen the partnership, and it's one which the United States and its leading defense experts and contractors can't afford to let slip by. We may not get another one quite like it again. Well, thank you very much. Um, please join me in thanking our experts today uh, in our thank discussion. Uh, thank you very much for the Hudson Institute for hosting and sponsoring this uh, excellent conversation. As many of uh, my colleagues uh, mentioned in the beginning, uh, all of our comments are meant to be our personal opinions and those not necessarily associated uh, with the organizations we are affiliated with. Thank you very much for spending your lunch hour with us. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. Thank you.